As more and more major brands are looking to shift ad dollars to podcast and digital audio channels, there's a heightened interest in understanding how impactful these channels are to the bottom line. In a recent case study, a national home furnishing retailer turned to two partners to help solve this challenge. SXM Media and Claritas collaborated to provide an innovative, integrated set of solutions to effectively launch podcast campaigns and accurately measure the impact those campaigns had across all key KPIs, including the incremental lift in website engagements and purchase conversions. For more information, visit claritas.com case studies. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a man in a town that I love, the great city of Chicago, which Ian will talk about. Our guest is Ian Sohn. Ian is the CEO for North America of Iris. They are one of the great companies that in many ways is redefining where the industry is and where we're going. We know the company well, and Ian, it is great to have you here on Great Minds, so welcome. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we, uh, we've already discovered shared passions for music. Inevitably, we will wind ourselves back to the who. And I do love your town uh, very much. One of my best friends uh, was from Wilmette. Yes. And uh, I have very fond memories, uh, very much like the movie Diner, where the Steve Gutenberg character would not marry his wife until she passed a Baltimore Cults trivia test. That's right. I would not marry my wife 30 years ago until I took her to Cafe Sarkis on the Evanston Wilmette border to meet Sarkis, which uh, uh, was a little greasy spoon, world's best omelet in the window, uh, said the sign, and it was the world's best omelet. And he was quite a character, Bailey's in the coffee. Uh, if you sat at the counter, big wet kiss from Sarkis and uh, was a legend. That's amazing. It's, it's a great, it's a great city. I was born and raised here, but as we were discussing before, I lived in New York for 12 years, been back here for a long time, but people always say to me, you know, you've lived in both cities. How do they compare? And, and I've always said, and I, I don't know if I stole this from somebody years ago or if I made this up myself, but I've always said, I believe Chicago is the great American city and New York is the greatest city in the world. And they don't even play in the same sandboxes. They're in two different kind of sets. But I think Chicago is just an incredible American city. And, and New York is still my favorite city in the world. So. Yeah, I think that's very well said, actually. And, and I love Chicago. I don't get there often enough. Oh, we're very excited to go see Buddy Guy, his last show in New York as his uh, damn right farewell tour concludes. He's 85. Uh, but, so many, so many times in, yeah. in Chicago, Kingston Mines. And yeah, Denver. all those great jazz clubs and at Buddy Guy's Legends. No, no better place to see Buddy Guy than Chicago. Okay, so let's, uh, let's uh, get into it here. We got a lot of ground to cover with you, Ian. And our crack team, as always, is on the case uh, researching our guests. And you had great tenures at two companies that have really undergone real challenges. Uh, one almost disappeared completely, the other very much uh, a different company today than it was. But I'd love to reflect on those early tenures you have working with Sony and with Nokia. 
Um, Nokia at one point, and I know you've had a lot of uh, work in uh, mobile before anybody even knew what mobile advertising was, but let's reflect on those early 10 years going back almost 25 years to Sony and a little less than that uh, to Nokia. Yeah. What's so interesting about both of those businesses is that I was uh, not my fault, <laughs> but I was in both of those industries during times of major transformation. So when I was at Sony Music was in the late 90s, was I remember literally sitting at my desk and somebody at work saying, hey, have you heard of this thing called Napster? Right, so that's how old I am. And um, it was when the business was still doing very well because people were replacing their record collection with their with CDs, right? So it was almost like being falsely propped up. And then digital music came along, Napster specifically, and completely disrupted the industry. And what was interesting was that the, the music business's first reaction was to kind of close ranks and hunker down and try to stop what was happening rather than trying to figure out what the implications were and how they could take advantage of these new trends. So that was a really interesting time to be at a company like Sony and be in the music business. When I was at Nokia, I was at Nokia from like 2004 to 2007. It's a company that I don't know that a lot of people really understand. When I was there, there was a, uh, Nokia had a, I believe a 33% market share in the mobile phone business. They had democratized the mobile phone. They brought it to the masses. And what happened with them was quite, uh, there was a lot of technology issues and it was kind of a Betamax um, VHS type thing in terms of what technologies companies were going to get behind. But also this was right when Apple was devising the um, iPhone. And Nokia being the behemoth that it was, I don't know, recognized the uh, existential challenge to their, to their business that the iPhone presented because making a mobile phone is really hard. It's a very hard thing to do. And uh, sure enough, Apple came along and, and did it. So really interesting times to be at both of those, both of those businesses in both of those industries. Yeah, and two very different businesses, but both ended up sort of on the wrong side of history. In terms of Sony slow to embrace, you'll remember the bets that were made on technologies. You referenced the Betamax. There was another one I remember, the DAT, the digital audio technology uh, that the hardware manufacturers did not embrace. And Nokia was King Kong, as was BlackBerry. And both, other than some value, I think, out of the patents, uh, Nokia's still around as a business, obviously very different. BlackBerry, I think, much like Kodak, a lot of the value ended up just being the value of uh, patents and technology. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I got into the music business. Um, I have a lot of family and friends and family friends who are in the music business. And that's kind of how I, I got into that at the very beginning of my career. Also, it's kind of a cool thing to be in when you're in your early 20s. Um, and I have a lot of heart for that business still. And, and I, I know a lot of people who are still in the business, actually. The, the Nokia thing, it's amazing. I left Nokia in 2007 when I moved to Chicago in many ways, I still bleed Nokia Blue. It's still a company that I feel so strongly about and had such a heart for. And to see what's happened to it, it doesn't break my heart necessarily, but it's 
I just have such fond memories of the people, the product, the company, um, that time in my life. So, yeah. Great, great stuff. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, they, uh, and a real farm system for talent. So many people that work there or worked at agencies that work with Nokia at that time. I was essentially commuting to Helsinki every two weeks when I was at Nokia because I was in a global role. And what I very quickly learned is that Helsinki was a hotbed of technology innovation because of Nokia. I mean, Nokia really spun off uh, so many innovations and so many interesting companies. So, yeah. Great stuff. So you talked about Chicago, and I think it's a city that we both love. I find there's a certain gravitas of people from Chicago that is unique in America. Let's talk about your native town, the great city of Chicago. Yeah, it is a great city. Um, It's funny, I live about five blocks away from where I grew up. And so I know every crack in the sidewalk, every personality, every everything. I think Chicago is, um, Chicagoans are a people of hardy stock. I think there is um, a real value system that Chicagoans live by. I think um, uh, we quite literally know how to kind of weather our way through terrible winters and oppressive summers. I think it's a city that um, is often looked at as a tier two city, right? The second city, quite quite literally, we're called the second city. And it doesn't actually put a chip on our shoulders. We're, we're the way we react is that we're just, we we kind of circle the wagons. We're very proud to be this city that we are. We're proud not to compare ourselves to an LA or a New York or, or a London or whatever. We just, we're very comfortable with, with who we are. It's not, it's an incredibly cosmopolitan city and there's the best of everything here, but it's just on a more manageable, reasonable scale. And I've just found it to be an incredibly livable city with a, a lot of really good people from good stock. I think you're right. And I think that values that you touched on, I agree with you completely. And I think people forget how beautiful the city is. You know, Lake Michigan in the summer, that's as pretty a place and the, the, the embrace of the waterfront down there. We were there for a wedding recently and got a chance to go out on the water on a free afternoon. You know, you could be anywhere in the world, including the most beautiful places in Europe. And, and you forget just how beautiful, and I think it is a very manageable, navigable city, much more so in many respects than my hometown of New York. Yeah, I live about uh, half a mile from the lakefront and I'm a runner. And I'm a morning person. So I see the sunrise probably three or four times a week all year. I'm up and on the lake. And for those of you who don't know how big Lake Michigan is, my kids up until they were 10, 11 years old thought it was an ocean. I mean, you don't, you, it's not a lake that you can see the other side of. It's it's a body of water with waves and everything. And I put it up against uh, anywhere in terms of beauty and, 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 People in Chicago, kind of like in Minneapolis, too, with their smaller lakes, people really embrace the lakefront, especially during the spring and summer and fall. And it's just so alive. And it's it's one of my favorite, favorite places. It's it's 
Chicago is huge geographically. And it's why I choose to stay near the water because it's just, to me, it's just the anchor of the city. Yeah. Good talk about Chicago all day. Just one of my very favorite towns. So let's talk about some of the iconic shops that you've worked at. And uh, you had a great, great tenure uh, rising to EVP of digital and social at Ogilvy. There about eight years uh, out of Chicago and also spent uh, some time at another great shop, uh, sort of post a number of mergers and acquisitions, what became Sapient Razorfish. Where does that embrace of digital come from? Was it something that just interested you? You were sort of in digital and in mobile and doing big campaigns for P&Gs when you were TAP and some other companies before anybody really even knew what that was. I think it was, um, I'd like to say it was some kind of foresight, um, but really, but, but, but truthfully, it was also just kind of where the industry was going. I do think, I do think coming out of that period at Sony that we talked about where all of a sudden kind of digital completely disrupted the industry, then going to Nokia and working in mobile, I do think there was a, a natural inclination towards, uh, a more digital world back in the the mid 2000s. You know, I I have a lot of friends and we've talked about this that when you go to a place for example like Ogilvy um and you spend years there and you learn the the real fundamentals of of brand and and brand at an agency, you oftentimes get approached by digital agencies to come kind of bring that brand thinking into a digital environment and then ironically once you you have that digital foundation you get the brand shops asking you to bring the digital expertise back to the the brand shop so it's a pendulum that that swings back and forth i think now what's so interesting i was having a conversation the other day with somebody we were talking about how i remember when i first got to ogilvy there was you know chief digital officers and you know you don't you don't see a lot of chief digital officers these days not because digital obviously isn't important but because it is digital i mean that's just what it is right um and so it's something that i um uh just kind of gravitated to and and i think my timing was right and and i've had some success because of it very well said so talk about the landscape in 2007 little bit different you know we started advertising week 2004 uh the iphone was 2006 youtube was 2007 most of the subjects that we talk about on our thought leadership stages globally today we had your old colleague rory sutherland on stage with us in london a few weeks ago uh vice chair of ogilvy globally is the gem of a guy uh, but most of those subjects didn't exist at all and a lot of the job titles you referenced, Chief Digital Officer, how wacky that would be today, have appeared and disappeared. Talk about the landscape then, 2007, very different than today. Yeah, really different. I remember in about 2008 or so, <clears throat> this is maybe a year, let's say Twitter launched in 2007, sometime around there, and um, Facebook kind of opened up right around then. and. Uh, Ogilvy had a social media practice uh, that was led by a guy out of our Washington, D.C. office. And I started the practice in the Chicago office. And back then, there was no advertising on any of these platforms. It was all really kind of 
influencer, mom bloggers, organic social, et cetera. So it was all um, stuff that we're still doing today, but but none of it was, um, there was no kind of paid media behind it. And we were just trying to feel our way through what does this mean for brands that are spending 99% of their budget above the line. Now, I remember the, the big conversations we had back then were with clients who rightfully we're trying to wrap their heads around how do we um how do we deal with not being able to control the conversation like we used to how do we feel safe talking actually talking directly to our customers or our customers talking to each other about us and so that's what those early days were about was helping to kind of shape that influence um so it was a it was really interesting it was a fun time it was a really exciting time to be in digital and social yeah you talk about foresight and there's always a little bit of serendipity and luck involved in things. Uh, but you end up at one of the great, great shops at a time and Ogilvy still formidable today, but you know, really, really just a, a tremendous place in the Chicago office in particular, very special for Ogilvy and Mather, uh, Sapi and Razorfish, very different shop. Talk about the compare and contrast of those two, one born of the digital age, one born by one of the great thinkers in our industry uh, and great philosophical thinkers, David Ogilvy, very different in origin. Yeah, it's funny. I have, you can't see my bookshelf. Somewhere on my bookshelf, I have several uh, Ogilvy on advertising books still, right? And I left that, I left that place a long time ago. You know, at Ogilvy, quite simply, when I was there, and I suspect this is still the case, creativity was the North Star. That's what ruled everything. Joe Sharota at, at the time was the creative lead in Chicago. And it was just, you know, what can we do creatively that's going to be the most disruptive, the most interesting, move the client's business, et cetera. But it was all the center of gravity was creativity. At Razorfish, the center of gravity was different. It was about engagement. It was about technology. It was about data um, with creativity kind of helping to round it out and, and bring all of that to life. So ending up maybe at similar places, uh, similar solutions, but just the center of gravity at, at Ogilvy clearly being creativity and that being the most important thing. And I, and I, I, I suspect it still is. I mean, I think that's what makes Ogilvy a special place is 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 their commitment to creativity but that definition has changed right and Ogilvy's changed that they've you know we've watched these big shops and they're still standing but we've seen so many of these incredible places J Walter Thompson is gone right DDB and Omnicom has no presence in 437 Madison at all anymore, which for years was their headquarters. And DDB New York is a shell of what it once was. What I love about your path is you had such a great experience at a time when the agency was really still thriving in many, many ways. Oh, it was literally, I get goosebumps when you say that, because I think about it was such a fun time to be there. I mean, even... You know, I, some of my great, it's so cliche, some of my greatest friends in the world 
to this day are people who I met at Ogilvy. Um, and it was just, it just felt adventurous and it felt fun and it felt collaborative and, and, um, uh, we didn't necessarily talk about PLs every day and margin. I mean, those were important things, but really the creativity, the idea is what was kind of what drove our everyday existence. And, um, you know, I, I think as a function of, of the way the industry has shifted and also as a function, of, you know, my role shifting and, and doing kind of different things and, and being in leadership, you know, it's easy to get away from that. Right. It's easy to lose that feeling and kind of get wrapped up more in the, the business of the business. But man, it was um, it was it, to me, it was such a special time. Yeah. And, and almost I and I think we're almost both sort of wistful and you go back. It was it was a, there was a romance to it. There was. And people at Ogilvy in particular. And I've said this. I mean, my, my friend Liz Taylor, who's the chief creative officer at Ogilvy globally now, I think she's on her third stint at Ogilvy and we've talked about how it's just there's a pull to it you know once you're in it there's a pull to it there's 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 something very romantic about uh, about that agency that kind of work the Ogilvy name itself et cetera et cetera I, again I don't know how it is now I haven't been there many years but uh, yeah it's interesting yeah and I'm not one who believes that the heyday of big shops is all in the past. I think there were great examples of big shops today that are doing great work that are still good businesses. Uh, I, I do think that some of the romance and some of the personalities, you know, uh, are in, uh, shall we say, short, shorter supply than they once were. That's right. And I think th I think um, in in many ways that bums me out. In some ways, it's probably good. You know, I mean, in some ways, I think we kind of needed to move on a bit. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. Great, great, great stuff. Uh, and let's talk about a little bit, anything else noteworthy about your tenure at Sapient Razorfish. And then I know you also spent a couple of years at Wonderman, another great chap. You know, just closing out on on Razorfish, I thought it was such a smart collection of people you know the razorfish name did carry a lot of a lot of weight at the time um when publicis acquired sapient for i don't know exactly how much but billions of dollars uh, there was a period of integration um and it took a while and um being a part of that was interesting from a business perspective just to see how something that big gets integrated into an existing place like razorfish now Sapien is doing incredibly well. They they're kind of cited in in every quarterly earnings call as being one of the drivers of Publicis's business. So I, I think that's great, and I'm really excited for uh, for them. But yeah, then I then I moved on, and we're going to get to Iris and uh, part of the Global Channel Network. Malcolm Poynton is a is a dear old friend of ours. We love we love Malcolm. Uh, talk about that brief tenure though at Hawkeye. A little bit different. Took a different turn. Yeah, a couple of years at Hawkeye. Um, again, so I uh, went to Wonderman Thompson after um, after Razorfish, a WPP shop. Really interesting opportunity to lead a uh, series of offices. So I led four offices for Wonderman Thompson, as well as uh, kind of be a global client lead on a big piece of business. I loved it. I thought it was great. 
Um, and then I spent a couple of years there and then I went back to Publicis. You know, when you live in Chicago, I don't know, I, I don't remember how it is in New York. When you live in Chicago, there's Publicis and WPP in terms of massive holding companies. Of course, we have right. and a bunch right. of other the only companies. the only one you missed is Burnett, I think. Right. So so you so so, you know, you you kind of ladder your way up across both of them. Um, I went back to to Hawkeye. It's a long story how I ended up there. But um, Hawkeye was an agency that Publicis acquired a few years ago and kind of um, let, let kind of sit off to the side a bit. And the way the story was told to me is that when Publicis acquired Epsilon, another multi-billion dollar acquisition, they discovered this agency within Epsilon that kind of nobody really knew about, and they didn't really know what to do with it. So they merged it with this agency called Hawkeye. They kept the name Hawkeye, and it became the uh, CRM Center of Excellence for Publicis Group. And they brought in a new leader, this guy, Joe DeMiro, who's now at um, UM, uh, who I met, I was introduced to, and absolutely loved and, and incredibly good friends with today. And Joe wanted to build the agency. He, you know, his mantra was always, let's let's build the agency that we all want to work for, right? That that we we know we can build. And and that's what we did for for a couple of years. And uh it was a wonderful time. I started a month after the pandemic started, which was interesting, and worked with Joe for a few years. Joe left. I left shortly thereafter to come to Iris, where I am now. Great story. And did you ever get a chance to meet Lester when you were at Wonderman? I did not. I did not get to meet Lester, but um, kind of like how I always joke that it's in our employment contract at Ogilvy that you have to use an Ogilvy quote in every presentation. Uh, it's uh, almost every presentation I gave at Wonderman Thompson had a picture of Lester in, in the first two or three slides. Uh, the 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 gag was always like, "This is the sexiest man in advertising." And and it was it was a picture of Lester, and it was like actually what we do is incredibly interesting and powerful from a business perspective, and and this was the pioneer in terms of what we do. So yeah, I, I love uh, the folks like that. I'm still very friendly uh, with Keith Reinhardt, uh, who has strong roots in Chicago. Actually, I just appreciate those that are still around and those giant figures like David Ogilvy, who I never met, and Lester, who I did meet many, many years ago. I think it was before I was even in the business, but uh, just a towering figure. All right, let's talk about uh, Iris being part of the Chale Global Network, a little bit different turn for you, uh, roots abroad uh, in Asia, doing really, really interesting creative work. Uh, it's a broader role. You're not beyond the Midwest. You've been working certainly with global clients, uh, but your remit now, all of North America, big, big role and relatively new. Yeah, I started uh, about 11 months ago. There had never, it's the first time they, they've had this position, which is this North American CEO position. Iris has um, six offices in North America. And the the remit was sent the brief was essentially to come in and create a unifying wrapper around all of these different offices across North America. Iris grew up in London. That's where they started. And they built their presence in North America 
both organically, you know, they would have a client that maybe needed in London that needed some some U.S. support. And so they'd open an office or they acquired a, a few different smaller agencies. So what happened was you had this collection of offices that essentially operated like small agencies and kind of had their own fiefdoms to some extent. And finally, what they realized was we needed we need to to harness the power of the whole network, bring it together and make these six small offices feel like one bigger agency. So that's kind of been my job since I got here. And talk about the experience there, a company not based in France or in England, but a company based in South Korea, a huge dominant client globally with Samsung and uh, really has built some of these incredible brands that are now true global brands. And I'll remember, I'm sure you do too, that, you know, when the Korean brands first made their presence known in America, they were second and third tier. And it was all the Japanese brands that were considered the top, you know, uh, bellwether brands. Now that's sort of changed. And Chael's role globally has really evolved in a fascinating way. Yeah, it, uh, it, the people that I've met at Chael and the people I interact with are so incredibly smart. Uh, they have a wonderful global perspective, offices all around the world. I mean, we can really chase the sun on anything when we need to tap into that that Chael network, which is incredible. Obviously, having Samsung as a huge client is an incredible opportunity, both for Chael and uh, for Iris, we do we do some really great, exciting work on Samsung as well. And on top of that, you know, Iris also has a very strong client base outside, in addition to Samsung. So we work with PayPal, we work with Bentley, we work with Samsonite, we work with IKEA. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm I always say when when I first got the call about this role at Iris, I went, who, what? You know, I hadn't didn't know it, and uh, when I started looking into it, I went, "How do I? How have I? How do I not know this this agency? I mean, these are these are incredible clients. I mean, just a plus brands." And I got into the business and started learning about it and learning about the work we do, et cetera. And it's incredibly impressive. I'm really, really impressive. Now, the fact that I didn't know who Iris was when I first got the call was part of the problem. Right. It was this fragmented thing. Now, I knew people in Atlanta, which is where we have another big office, who were very familiar with Iris. But, you know, because Iris had done some work and they had a profile in Atlanta. So my job, again, was to kind of bring it all together and make us feel bigger rather than a bunch of fragmented offices. Yeah, it reminds me of my old friend, uh, Bud Greenspan. Bud was a legendary Olympic filmmaker, really invented in many ways the genre of the sport. Are you really friends with him? Well, Bud's gone now, but I was really close with Bud. Yes. Yeah, really close with Bud. And uh, when my early career was in sports, and when we were bidding, when Atlanta got the Olympic Games, that knocked us out of New York for bidding for the Games. And so we bid for, do you remember the Goodwill Games? Yeah, of course. So I wrote the bid that won for the Goodwill Games for New York for 1998. Ted Turner, as you may recall, started them to bridge the Olympic boycotts. Ironically, we didn't go to the 80 games in Moscow, President Carter protesting the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan, where of course we ended up years later. 
Uh, and then they boycotted 84. Is that right? That's correct. Very good. So they did not go to 84, the then Soviet Union. And in the L.A. Union. Correct. And so Ted Turner said, hey, it's been since 1976 and the Montreal game since the East and West had competed with each other. He started the Goodwill Games. First one was 86 Moscow, 90 in Seattle, 94 was St. Petersburg, Russia. And I wrote the bid for New York that won for 98. And Bud did our bid film for the final presentation. Ah. And I felt like when we walked into that final presentation room with Bud and I chose three others, a guy who ran the Meadowlands, uh, and two others, uh, key members of our committee, you know, I felt I was walking in with Babe Ruth and, having, yeah, no you know, kidding. having Bud and um, actually the coldest I ever was, uh, was in Chicago at a Bears Packers game. And it was the year after I went to the 94 games in Lillehammer, uh, Norway with Bud. And I thought, surely that will be the coldest I will ever be. <laughs> Until I got to Soldier Field in <laughs> December of the next year. It can be pretty horrible, yeah. Oh right. my, oh my gosh. So, you know, before we got on again, we were talking about our shared uh, love and passion for music and for The Who in particular. And what I love about them as much as anything and what I respect about bands like The Who, like The Rolling Stones, is longevity. And that after all these years, they're still performing at an incredibly high level. Um, that's true of you also. And just talking to you, your passion for the business seems to be as high today at Iris as it ever was going back to those early agency experiences that you had. And, you know, you've covered a lot of ground for a relatively young guy. Thank you. Um, I, I, uh, I'm 51. Sometimes I feel as old as Mick or Daltrey, but uh, uh, I've got another 25, 30 years or so. Um, I, uh, I think, listen, if I'm going to show up to work every day and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be around people whose careers are still very much in a formative stage, et cetera, I want to put my all into it. I want to really try. I want to demonstrate a passion an openness, a willingness to learn, do new things, um, listen to new perspectives, et cetera. I think it's what's interesting. I mean, yeah, of course I like getting paid. This is why we work. I've got kids who are going to college in a couple of years and vacations and all that kind of stuff. But if you're going to show up, you might as well show up with some passion and some um, uh, some enthusiasm. So I appreciate that. I, I love, one of the things that I love about bands like the stones and the who and bands like that is that they are still out there doing it with a lot of enthusiasm and energy, but they're very much true to who they are. I mean, the Rolling Stones, sure. They've made some disco-ish albums, but they're, they are a rock and roll band and they, oh, and they get on stage and they play Brown Sugar and they play Start Me Up. And it is, it is, right down the middle rock and roll and i actually i'm going to see the grateful dead uh dead and coat uh next week at wrigley it's the same kind of thing they get on stage and they play grateful dead and it is awesome so it's an enthusiasm that they still have in an energy but they're very true to who they are as humans as artists as musicians etc which i which i just love so well said and and 
uh, and longevity. And uh, you got a long way to go there, uh, uh, Ian, but uh, so enjoyed this conversation. G give us a, a look on your Iris whiteboard. You've been there just under a year. What will define success for you? Clearly, lifting the brand. What brought me back to Bud uh, uh, earlier was one of Bud's great expressions, and he was often accused of seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. Bud would tell these incredibly inspirational stories. And Bud had two lines which stuck with me and I borrow all the time. One was that the media, and I am not demonizing the media, but Bud would say the media spends 90% of their time on the 10% that's bad. He spent 100% of his time on the 90% that's good. And Bud would also say, and this is what you know reminded me of you and how you described Iris, Bud would say, when you come out of one of my films, I want you to say, gee, I didn't know that. And it sounds like Iris has a big, gee, I didn't know that story to be told. Talk about what's on your whiteboard and strategic plan for the agency in the year ahead. Yeah, the things that people, are, they probably roll their eyes at this point because I, I say these things all the time, but I really believe them. There's a couple of things. We win as one, right? What's What's good... Uh, what's good for Bob in our San Francisco office is good for Jane in our Boston office. We all win collectively. Everything we do that's a success, we've all contributed to it, um, which I truly believe. I also think, and I say this all the time, we can be really good at what we do in this advertising business and be really good human beings at the same time. And that's incredibly important to me that success and kindness are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I believe success follows kindness. Going back to my music industry days, I have a second cousin who's like my parents, he's in his early 70s and he's been in the music business his whole life. He's one of the nice, named Arthur Spivak, one of the nicest people I've ever met. And he said to me years ago, he said, um, you know, you can make it in the music business being a nice guy like I am. It just takes a little longer. And that's the path that he chose to go down. He's a nice guy. He said, it just took me a little longer. I hit when I was in my mid 40s, not in my mid 20s, because I was a nice guy. And I believe the same for advertising. You know, you can be really kind, really nice, really human and be really successful. So those are the things I believe in. Fantastic. And I love how you wound it back to those Chicago values. Very similar, I had a conversation with the great Marshall Chess, who's the son of Phil Chess and Leonard, uh, I guess Leonard, I'm sorry, Phil was his uncle of Chess Records fame, another great Chicago music institution. I think the uh, Willie Dixon Museum is on the old home of the Chess studio. And uh, very similar, you know, that real commitment uh, to Chicago and Chicago values. So. I love that we ended up back there. Well, this was great, Ian. I so enjoyed it. And uh, we'll, help, we'll help you any way you can. Uh, uh, really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, it's great to be in touch with a guy and someone whose children also think Lake Michigan is an ocean, as did I, <laughs> uh, when I when I was younger. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
few years ago, the ad revenue forecasts for podcast advertising were estimated to pass the $1 billion mark in 2023. But that actually happened in 2021. As both startup and mainstream brands flood dollars into podcast and digital audio advertising, many companies still struggle with how to accurately measure the impact these channels have on driving ROI. Claritas has emerged as a leader in helping brands, publishers, and agencies accurately measure attribution and the incremental lift podcasts and digital audio channels have on helping marketers drive success. Listen to their latest podcast to hear more about the current and future direction of these high-impact yet still somewhat emerging channels. For more information, visit claritas.com slash claritas podcast.